Have you ever continually listened to a song that just stuck with you? Or kept an album on repeat in your car for weeks until you listened to it enough to expel it from your brain? Music itself is a haunting mechanism. The stories within the songs have a tendency to stay with you long after you've pulled the needle from the vinyl. I remember being in my early 20s, listening to Johnny Cash tell incredible stories through song. Long Black Veil in particular always hit me whenever I heard Cash sing it. It's the story of a man refusing to betray his best friend, going to the gallows because to save himself would mean that he'd have to tell everybody that he was sleeping with his best friend's wife. There are a lot of stories like that within songs. But even music has a real-world mythology to itself, and includes a number of occult figures. People like Robert Johnson, the Mississippi blues musician who gained prominence nearly 40 years after his death, as the guy who, like Faust, sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the ability to play the guitar really, really good. Since the 60s, that legend has spread far and wide. I think Martin Scorsese put it best when he said, quote, The thing about Robert Johnson was that he only existed on his records. He was pure legend, end quote. And Scorsese is right, and his legend has influenced more musical acts than any in music history. People like Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant count Johnson as an influence. So many legends are built among bands. They range from simple tidbits like Bob Dylan often laying down recordings in one take, to more far-fetched ones. There's a story about the members of Led Zeppelin fornicating with a lemon shark, there's the legend of the 27 Club, a small group of musical acts that died before their time. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, Jim Morrison, Pigpen from the Grateful Dead are among the members of this club. Of course, Lord and Justin Bieber are reptilians. They're really not, but, you know, that persists. And there's a story that suggests Jay-Z is a time-traveling vampire. I'm not kidding. And I'm not going to be touching on this one. Just Google search it. I'm sure you'll fall down many a rabbit hole. The UFO community has its own Robert Johnson type figure that you may not know about. He hasn't influenced anyone. His music doesn't have a wide audience. He does have a cult following, though, these days. Thanks to one man in his search to find the truth. This is the story of a man who seemingly walked into the desert and disappeared forever. And another man who tried to follow his trail 35 years later. This is the story of Matt and Jim Sullivan, two guys unrelated to one another, but connected nonetheless. What's up, you finots? Welcome to the Our Strange Guys Podcast. In 2009, Matt Sullivan was in the process of moving from Seattle, Washington to Los Angeles, California. He had founded Light in the Attic in 2001, a record label that specialized in seeking out long-forgotten records and breathing new life into them through wonderfully packaged reissues. Many of these records come with a mythology and folklore built into them. One morning, Matt was perusing the website Waxidermy a blog devoted to obscure records, and he found a post written by a man named Reynaldo called Jim Sullivan, UFO. After reading the blog, he downloaded a vinyl rip of the album, and as he described it, quote, I was hooked after hearing the first few seconds of track one, Jerome. I've been obsessing over Jim and his music ever since. In an interview on NPR's All Things Considered, Matt described UFO thusly, 
Quote, his voice has this kind of weathered, worldly Americana sound, kind of a country mixed with rock element to it. From there, the production, the strings, it's lush, but they're dark and eerie. I kind of look at it as pop songs that aren't happy. They're filled with despair. What really struck him was the comment section on the Waxidermy blog post. They were initially reaction posts to the article, but soon they included third-party remembrances of Jim from people who knew those related to him, record executives that knew him directly and partied with him, and family members. The first comment was from a guy named Rick, who claimed to be friends and bandmates with Jim's nephew, who said, quote, When I asked him about it, he told me that his Uncle Jim had died when he was three years old. All he really had to remember him by was this unusual collection of songs and a story about Jim being abducted by aliens. The last he heard was that Sully had been murdered. End quote. Rick would go on to talk about Jim's role in the film Easy Rider, playing a musician in a bar scene. The next comment of interest would come from Capitol Records executive John Rankin. Quote, I was thinking about my friend Jim Sullivan and decided to Google his name. I found this site and not much more. Jim's wife Barbara was my secretary at Capitol Records from 1968 to 69. I tried to get him signed, but they thought he was too much like their new artist, James Taylor at the time. I left Capitol and played bass for Jim in bars around L.A. for maybe a year on and off. Many years ago, I heard that he had disappeared. I think it was in New Mexico, end quote. More comments would come in from Jim's sister-in-law, Linda, and her daughter, Michelle. The next day, Matt would reach out to Jeff Hassett of Waxidermy to see if he could get in touch with Jim's family. And after sending out an email to Jim's son, Christopher, he received the call a day later. In a bit of serendipity, Chris owned some of Light in the Attic's releases. Matt then explained to Chris that he wanted to reissue UFO. This would lead Matt on a near-year-long journey to find out what happened to Jim and to track down the master tapes. After the phone call, Matt tried to track down the, those original tapes, which proved to be very difficult. He spent the next few weeks trying to get in touch with his manager, Robert Buster Ginter, to no avail, but was able to get in touch with his daughters. He had unfortunately passed 17 years before. Dead end. Next, Matt attempted to track down the musicians that backed Jim on the album. Known affectionately as the Wrecking Crew, this group was the backing band for numerous acts in the 1960s and 70s. Acts like the Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel, the Beach Boys, and numerous stars associated with Phil Spector. Don Randy, keyboard player on the album, didn't seem to remember anything. And who could blame the guy? If you were featured on numerous recording sessions with famous people, I can only imagine how memorable a session featuring a relatively unknown artist would be. Jimmy Bond, the producer of the album, and string bass player, proved to be the most difficult to track down. After a desperate plea with one of Jimmy's former neighbors, Matt was put in contact with Jimmy Bond Jr., and the next day he had a face-to-face -face meeting with Jimmy Bond Sr. On the surface, Bond couldn't remember a thing, but his demeanor changed instantly when Matt played him the record. Quote, The moment I start playing the record, Jimmy's eyes immediately light up. He was in poor health, and 41 years had passed since the recording of the LP. But Jimmy sat there intently, taking in every little thing, his eyes sparking up upon each change. Then he choked up, end quote. Jimmy's recollections were few and far between, but he shared what he could. From there, Matt would meet with as many people as he could to try to find answers to Jim's disappearance. His wife Barbara and son Christopher would share photographs and newspaper clippings. Executive producer of UFO, Al Dobbs, met with Matt at midnight one evening at a Waffle House. 
He produced old contracts concerning Jim's songs, and he even had the original photos used as album art for UFO, including the kaleidoscopic photo used on the cover. In late 2010, Light in the Attic Records would release the album, and since has gone on to attain a cult following. When we get back from the break, I'll tell you Jim's side of the story, from birth to disappearance outside of Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Jim Sullivan was born on August 13, 1940, the seventh son to Michael and Kathleen Sullivan. Michael moved the family from Nebraska to San Diego, California to work at a naval complex on San Diego's North Island. On the liner notes to the 1970 reissue of UFO, Jim would note, quote, I grew up in a government housing project along with a bunch of other Okies and Arkies, of all sizes and colors, in a fairly clean pile. In high school, he was the quarterback of the varsity team. He met his wife Barbara during this time in 1956, and four years later they would be married. Growing up, he found a passion for music, watching local blues musicians play at various houses for hours on end. He would run home and practice songs like Okie Dokie Stomp by Clarence Gatemouth Brown on his Sears Silvertone guitar and box amp until he, quote, had grown calluses on his fingertips and brain. It was around this time that he opened up a bar with a friend while simultaneously attending college. The bar went bankrupt, but he had started gigging around town with bands, including one called The Survivors, which he played in with his sister-in-law, Kathy Doran. In 1968, Jim and Barbara moved to Los Angeles in the hopes of making it big. She initially got a job with an investment counseling firm, until she was directed to a job at Capitol Records in the products department, working with John Rankin. While Barbara worked, Jim focused on his music. They moved around a lot during this time, too. Chris Sullivan, their first child, was seven at the time of the move. Quote, I remember living in some houses and some apartments between Stone Canyon and Encino, right off Ventura Boulevard. There was an extended kind of chosen family environment with people hanging out all the time. Cultural values were shifting, and artistically, everyone was bound together by their interest in art, whether they were actors or singers, and Ventura was the link that connected everyone." End quote. Jim found himself a manager in Robert Buster Ginter, who represented mostly actors before taking on Jim. He began to gig relentlessly over L.A. and Malibu. He was a regular at the Lindy Opera House on Wilshire Boulevard, the Lighthouse in Redondo Beach, but he made big waves at the Raft in Malibu. He would pack the place every night and drew crowds from various celebrities, like Farrah Fawcett, Lee Majors, Vic Morrow, and Harry Dean Stanton. Jim would play these intimate solo shows, just capturing the room with a guitar and voice. One regular that found himself returning to the raft night after night was Al Dobbs, a former actor turned cue card holder for the Steve Allen show. He saw huge potential in Jim and hit up his frat brother at the University of Texas, Chad Delaney, for money to fund the creation of what would become UFO. Enough money was funded to hire the Wrecking Crew, and crew member Jimmy Bond would be tapped to produce the album as well. UFO features lush string arrangements behind dark song material focusing on esoteric topics, including songs about mortality, spirituality, karma, UFOs, and bad relationships. The themes of the album have a tendency to put images of the desert and highways in one's mind. It's the perfect driving record. And through it all is Jim's voice, which was a balance of rough and smooth in a combination never heard of before. I don't want to go into great detail about the individual songs. If you have never heard this album... 
go in blind. Go in not knowing really much of anything because it is such an engaging album. It just captures you the first time you hear it. And if it doesn't, I'm sorry, but like, go listen to it again. The album was released in 1969 on Money Records, an independent label named for Chad Delaney's daughter. It had very little impact, almost to the point of no impact. Part of that was due to the group of people Jim surrounded himself with. They were inexperienced in the ways of the business. The other concerned the songs. They were not written with radio play in mind. Despite this, UFO is a stunning collection of songs that hang heavy on the ears every time you play it. It it really is. I'm failing to, to describe it, but it just really sinks with me. It, it 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 really is my favorite album of all time because it's so beautiful, it's so unusual. It just does not it doesn't sound like anything else, regardless of what people say. Like they can draw comparisons wherever they want, but it it doesn't sound like anything else. Numerous people backed and promoted Jim and the album during this time. Al Dobbs shopped the album around at every stop he made on the road for his job. He even tried to get Johnny Cash's manager to listen to it. John Rankin tried to get Capitol Records interested. But, like he said in the comment section on Waxidermy, Capitol Records thought he sounded too much like James Taylor. That's bullshit. I'm just going to be honest, that's bullshit. Jim also wasn't much of a self-promoter himself. He wanted to focus on the music. And he just didn't have the right people behind him. That's not to say that he didn't have good people behind him, but Bob Ginter was not the right manager for Jim. Al Dobbs didn't have the connections besides Chad, and even that was only for funding. And without a label in those days, it was pretty much impossible to get your song on the radio. A year later, they recut the album on a label called Century City Records, and they pulled back the Wrecking Crew's production to really put Jim in the forefront. They also released the song Rosie as a single paired with Roll Back the Time as a B-side. These failed to do anything for Jim as well. The production on this version is not very great. I will include a YouTube link to this version in the show notes. The production is really choppy. They did the best they could with it, but at the same time, I, I don't know why they bothered to do that. In 1972, Jim released a self-titled follow-up album on Playboy's short-run label. These songs are wholly different. There's a lot more orchestration, or at least a lot more instrumentation. But it's still really good. I, it, it's not the kind of album that's going to stick with you like UFO will, but it's still really good. And like with UFO, it attracted very little attention. Jim continued to gig endlessly because that's all he knew. But because of a lack of success, he actually started to become a heavy drinker in the next few years. His marriage started falling apart, too. His wife moved back to San Diego with Christopher and their daughter, Jamie. Jim decided that he might find better luck in Tennessee, developing his craft in Nashville. His sister-in-law and former bandmate, Kathy Doran, lived in the area, and her husband was a Nashville session musician named Dave Doran. Jim took everything he had, which was about $125, a box of records, some clothes, and his guitar, and took off for Tennessee. He left on March 4th, 1975, between 12 and 1 p.m., and drove for 15 hours straight. 
He drove 900 miles along Route 66, passing through the Mojave Desert and places like Flagstaff, Arizona, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. One can only wonder what Jim Sullivan saw while driving through these places in his VW Bug. On March 5th, he was pulled over by local police near the town of Santa Rosa, New Mexico. He had been caught swerving in the road. When the police brought him in, they found that he wasn't intoxicated, but just more exhausted and needing some rest. They directed him to the La Mesa Motel in Santa Rosa. He rented a room, but did not sleep there, instead choosing to lock his key inside. He then called his wife and stopped at a nearby liquor store before taking off again. A few days later, his car was found abandoned, 23 miles down a dirt road off the main highway. Everything he owned was in it, including his beloved 12-string guitar. Multiple searches over the year were conducted by federal, state, and local police, as well as his family and friends. But Jim Sullivan was never found. Many theories exist as to what happened to Jim Sullivan. According to Barb, quote, Jim's brothers and my brother and a couple of his friends all went to Santa Rosa to find out what in the devil was going on. The sheriff said that Jim had arrived in town, checked into the La Mesa Motel, went to the liquor store, and bought a bottle of vodka and took off in his car, end quote. The property his car was found on was owned by the Ginettis, a family of Italian immigrants that supposedly didn't speak good English. According to Barb, after members of their family interviewed the Ginettis, they said that they had interacted with Jim on their property. Quote, He had the lights on in his VW, which they could see 10 miles away in the ranch house. Mrs. Ginetti and her two ranch hands drove the 10 miles to find him, and when they got to his car, she asked him if he had a problem. He said, No, do you? And she said, Yes, you're on my property. We don't know what happened from there, except that Jim's brother Jerry went back to Santa Rosa a few times. And the last time he went, he learned that the sheriff had resigned. The clerk at the motel had joined the service, and the Ginettis had sold the ranch and moved to Hawaii. I'm sure Jim is someplace out there. He died too soon, but it was meant to be. End quote. Other theories include Jim dying at the hands of two corrupt cops, who were not a fan of the hippie lifestyle he ascribed to. Another says that he got drunk, wandered out into the desert, and simply got lost. The one theory that many people romanticize is the idea that Jim hitched a ride with a UFO never to be seen again. Barbara has said that both her and Jim were big fans of Edgar Cayce, and that they talked about life on other planets from time to time. I want to believe that maybe Jim had some fans among the stars, and that maybe he hitched a ride in some spacecraft, and had been playing his way across the galaxy, a star among the stars. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to email the show, you can do so by emailing ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Guys. We have a Facebook group, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Guys. Come join the conversation over there. I want to give a shout out to the Graveyard Tales podcast. They just did a phenomenal episode about the Flatwoods Monster. And I got to tell you, they covered it better than any podcast I've heard thus far. So go check that out. Adam and Matt have a great podcast regardless. It doesn't matter. They, they cover everything in a thorough and fun way. And I think if you don't already listen to them, you're going to love it. 
Also, if you dig music in the occult, I talked about this story over on the Double Density podcast with Brian and Angelo on episode 38. I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. We have merch available now. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes as well for that. And uh, there are great designs in there from the great Desdemona, um, including the space pancakes from her store. And uh, we got the logo shirt done by Tessa Brown. Special thanks to the Ossic for all the great work that they're doing to help make this a better show. And as I said, our logo was designed by Tessa Brown. And our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. And greatly trust.